0: Welcome to ParCast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal Crimes of Passion episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the ParCast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular ParCast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find the original episodes for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. Today, we're discussing cases of criminality inspired by economic misfortune. What happens when a person who has fallen on hard times turns to a life of crime? Nobel Prize winner Pearl Buck once said that hunger makes a thief of any man. Buck seems to be saying that enough desperation can push a person into criminal activity. But is this true? Researcher Morgan Kelly says it is. In fact, Kelly discovered that financial inequality increases the rates of violent crime within a community. Kelly attributes this to what he calls strain theory this theory states that individuals who face strains and stressors are more likely to commit crimes. Poverty creates many strains and stressors, and as the impoverished grow frustrated with their inability to afford a high-quality lifestyle, their frustration drives them to commit crimes. Yet this phenomenon isn't just limited to individual action. In fact, according to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, economic crises can cause crime to rise overall. Countries experiencing economic upheaval often see robbery rates double, while homicide and motor vehicle theft also increase in frequency. In today's Crime Bites, we'll explore the relationship between poverty and crime, and see what happens when volatile individuals suffer from economic misfortune. Our first clip is from ParCast original Crimes of Passion, covering the most infamous criminal duo of the Great Depression era, Bonnie and Clyde. The pair robbed stores and banks in the 1930s, murdering several people in the process. But before the gunslinging couple captivated the attention of Americans nationwide, they were Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow, two kids born into poor families who dreamt of something more.
1: Clyde was like Bonnie in many ways. He was a dreamer. He believed he could unshackle himself from the impoverished life of factory work. And he was tenacious in almost everything he did, legal or illegal. The Barrow family was a victim of the 1920s farm crisis, so early in the decade, the clan was forced to abandon their farmland and move to West Dallas, Texas. They could not afford a house, so the seven children and two parents lived in a wagon in a campground. Clyde's father, Henry, was a junk man who hardly had free time. This means that the Barrows were at the bottom rung of one of the poorest neighborhoods in Dallas. But as a teenager, Clyde took to Dallas readily. He saw the suave put-together nature of its upper-class citizens and longed to achieve their success. He could be more than his campground, he thought. He could be a man of substance. He thought he could penetrate the upper echelon through music, but learned the hard way that even pursuing your artistic passion came at a high price. In 1926, a saxophone cost $18, far too much for a 16-year-old Clyde's $1 a day salary. Clyde worked in various factories around Dallas and switched jobs frequently, yet Clyde soon became blatantly aware of the reality that no matter how hard he worked, no matter which position he held, there was little he could do to escape poverty. The system was not built for people like Clyde Barrow to succeed. This is perhaps why Clyde turned to crime. Jennifer Sheehy-Scuffington and Jessica Ray, an assistant social psychology professor and PhD candidate respectively, found that the stress caused by extreme poverty can alter our decision-making processes. More specifically, the anxiety formed when an impoverished person compares themselves to others may cause them to make decisions for immediate rewards rather than thinking through a decision that leads to long-term success. Clyde initially tried to overcome this by putting in long factory hours and signing up for the United States Navy. To his dismay, he discovered that an illness he suffered at an early age prevented him from ever serving in the military. Because these pursuits did not lead to instant gratification, Clyde became more downtrodden and desperate. All this is to say that at first, Clyde Barrow tried to make something of himself in a legal fashion. But the repeated failure started to make one thing more and more apparent. If Clyde wanted to break free of this vicious social constraint, he had one option, breaking the law.
0: In that clip from Crimes of Passion, we saw that Clyde Barrow tried to make an honest living to afford the things he wanted in life. But he quickly learned how hard it is to escape poverty. After this realization, Clyde and his brother Buck began committing petty crimes to make quick cash. But their behavior soon escalated into bigger crimes, like car theft. He was arrested. Clyde tried to go straight after his first stint in prison, and he got a job at a glass factory in Dallas. But by this time, police knew the name of Clyde Barrow any time a theft or robbery occurred in the area, the police harassed and questioned Clyde at work until eventually he lost his job. Without a paycheck, Clyde felt forced into crime once more. But while Clyde Barrow stole cars and bank deposits, our next criminal grew so desperate for money, they stole someone's identity. Coming up, we'll discuss the imposter, Anna Anderson. Now back to the show. According to researcher Morgan Kelly's strain theory, economic misfortune can have a great impact on behavior. Sometimes it pressures people so much, it can push them into criminal activity. Our next clip, from Con Artists, tells the story of Franziska Shonskotsky, better known as Anna Anderson. From 1921 until her death in 1984, Anna posed as the Grand Duchess Anastasia Romanov. The real Anastasia Romanov was murdered as a child, along with her family, the last royal family of Russia. However, Anastasia's body was not discovered until 2007 and Francisca saw the doubt caused by the missing body as an opportunity. Francisca Shanskovsky
2: was born on December 16, 1896 in Borek, Pomerania, a region on the border of Poland and Germany. She was the fourth of five children born to Anton and Marie Shanskovsky. The Shanskovskys were formerly minor nobility. However, by the time Anton Shanskovsky inherited, he squandered it all through alcoholism. The family was poor throughout Francisca's childhood and moved often chasing work. But this history of nobility even if only minor and a few generations removed, inspired Francisca to see herself as special. Her sister Gertrude accused her of putting on airs and acting like someone of a higher class instead of the poor labourer's daughter she was. She wore her best dresses, gloves and high-heeled shoes just to run errands in the village. A study conducted by the University of Southampton found that white lies about our prestige or successes can actually encourage our minds to work harder to make those embellishments reality. Psychologist Richard H. Gramzo, the study organizer, said, It's important to emphasize that the motives driving personal exaggeration seem to be intrapsychic rather than public or interpersonal. Basically, Exaggeration here reflects positive goals for the future, and we have found that those goals tend to be realised. Francisca spoke three languages and attended school until she was 15, a rarity for someone of their means. She loved books and read all the time, hiding in the family's covered wagon with a novel, while the other children brought in the harvest. She was especially inspired by the story of King Arthur who was a lowly orphan until he found Excalibur and the sword made him a king. Franziska wanted more for herself too, so in 1914, when Franziska was 17, she moved from the small town of Higgendorf to Berlin, Germany for better prospects.
0: That clip from con artists highlighted the early life of Franziska Shanskowski, who ached for nobility and wealth. Like Clyde Barrow, Franziska initially attempted to make an honest living after moving to Berlin. She had a job as a maid, but lost it when the economy took a downturn. Franziska was next employed as a hand grenade assembler, supplying munitions for German forces during World War II. Her career lasted until 1916 when Franziska accidentally dropped a grenade on the assembly line. Her foreman died in the accident, and afterwards, she was never the same. She was repeatedly committed to mental hospitals, and four years later, she attempted suicide. To avoid being sent to jail, suicide was a crime in Germany at the time. Francisca refused to give anyone her real name. Then, at some point, she started calling herself Anastasia Romanov. It gave her a chance for a whole new life. Francisca managed to successfully reinvent herself and claim someone else's identity. But in our next clip, we'll hear from someone who lived two lives at the same time. Our final clip comes from Espionage. It covers U.S. military intelligence officer and Soviet spy, George Trothamoff. As a high-ranking member of the U.S. Army, George held secret and top-secret clearances. In 1969, he was promoted to the head of the Nuremberg Joint Interrogation Center. But George was in dire financial straits as he was financially supporting three ex-wives and three children. Shortly after his promotion, he reunited with his foster brother Igor and relayed his financial troubles. Igor was a bishop of the Russian Orthodox Church in Munich and a secret agent for the KGB. Igor decided to help his brother by bringing him into the KGB fold.
3: George's financial problems were the perfect opportunity to get him to spy for the KGB. At first, Igor reassured George that he wouldn't have to repay the money. But then, in the summer of 1969, Igor came to George with a proposition. If he photographed classified documents from the JIC, George could receive a guaranteed stipend from the KGB, that would permanently fix his financial problems. George couldn't believe what Igor was telling him. They had grown up hating the communists, and now Igor wanted him to help their cause. The Soviets had forced their families from their homes, made them into little more than beggars on the streets of Berlin. Furthermore, George was proud of his position in the American military. The United States had made George the man he was, He hated the idea of doing anything to harm his adopted country. But, on the other hand, nothing made George happier than living the good life. And at that moment, his life was far from good. He was reduced to living in a tiny bachelor apartment, barely keeping his head above water, as every paycheck went to supporting his family. He tried to convince himself that he wouldn't be doing it to help the communists. It would be in service of Mother Russia. And he wouldn't provide the KGB with any information on American military capabilities or intelligence strategies. He'd only photograph documents detailing what the U.S. had learned about the USSR. George soon came to a decision. He would help his brother. Igor was delighted. Although discovering American secrets was the ultimate goal, knowing what the U.S. knew about the Soviet Union was still incredibly helpful. If any important strategies had been revealed, the USSR could use the intelligence George provided to simply change its approach to whatever the U.S. had learned. To get George started... Igor provided him with a brand-new double-frame camera, allowing him to easily photograph two pages at once, as well as a tripod and two gooseneck lamps for specialized lighting.
0: That clip from Espionage discussed George Trofimov's recruitment as a KGB spy through his foster brother Igor. George would go on to spy for the KGB for at least 25 years, His intel proved so useful that he was awarded the Order of the Red Banner by the Soviet Union, a distinction presented to individuals who perform actions in defense of the socialist homeland. George Trofimov's espionage was ultimately discovered during a sting performed by an undercover FBI agent. George was arrested in 2000 and convicted the following year. The criminals in our clips today were all in economically disadvantaged positions, and according to the criminological perspective of strain theory, the stress and frustration of their situation caused them to pursue criminal avenues of profit. In Crimes of Passion, Clyde Barrow felt strained by the circumstances he was born into. As the son of a poor farmer in a large family with the Great Depression looming, Clyde resorted to crime because he felt it was his only option and, as discussed in the intro, economic crises such as the Great Depression increase robbery and motor vehicle theft, two crimes for which Clyde and the Barrow Gang were notorious. The clip from con artists showed that Franziska Shonskovsky desired a luxurious life. But when a series of unfortunate occurrences left her unemployed, hurt, and mentally ill, she resorted to posing as the noble woman she always longed to be. And espionage highlighted a man who got himself into such deep debt that he used his status as a powerful U.S. Army officer to slip secrets to the Soviet Union, earning a hefty paycheck to support his many dependents. In the end, they all learned the hard way, crime does not pay. Thanks for tuning in to ParCast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on economic misfortune. We'll be back next week with a new episode on criminals who poison their victims. What makes poisoning such a unique modus operandi for a killer? If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast original shows, Crimes of Passion, Con Artists, or Espionage on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. I'll see you next time.